HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Consider the jelly bean. Hmm. Consider the jelly bean, right. How about the bunny that brought the jelly bean? We're going to talk about this and a whole lot of other sweet things today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, and indeed, Jelly beans and Easter bunnies. It is the season. Uh, and today I have with me to talk about all these sweet things, Michael Crandall. And Michael is a teaching instructor, a writer, an author, a lecturer. He's the author of The Taste of Conquest, The Rise and Fall of Three Great Cities of Spice. Hmm, you can hear that show. Uh, I think that was, I forget what number that is. Joe, help me out. That was one of our past shows, Michael. Michael's uh, not a, a newcomer to my show. And uh, he also wrote Around the American Table. And uh, the recent book that we're really going to be referring to, along with an article for Gastronomica, <coughs> is Sweet Invention, A History of Dessert, which traces the rich history of sweets from Europe to India and the Middle East. And it talks about a lot of the religious and secular and metaphysical symbolism of the sweets, of many of these sweet confections. Uh, Michael has written and and talked a lot about sweets, and I referred to the Gastronomica article, which was um, Sweets in India. And many of you might have seen the wonderful cover on Sever magazine, the whole cover article was Michael's. It was all about donuts. But today, being the Easter season, let's start off talking about some traditional Easter sweets. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, and happy whatever whatever holiday, whatever <laughs> whatever holiday, holiday. <laughs> you want to celebrate. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. Um, as I said, you know, Easter. It, there's so many symbolic um, sweets associated with Easter, and. Where did all this come from, and what are some of these that we might want to know about? Well, it originates, oh dear, probably with the Babylonians or even (laughs) older than that, because this is the time of rebirth. And of course, Easter is fundamentally a holiday about rebirth. It's a a holiday about fertility. Um, 
And the Jews and the Christians and others that piggybacked on this and added their holidays to it. And fertility, well, fertility tastes sweet, I suppose. (laughs) Okay. So that the idea of sweet foods um, have been associated with just about every holiday, but the bigger the holiday, the more sweets are associated with it. I think the desserts or sweets that uh, Europeans typically associate with Easter, though, are various kinds of breads. Mm -hmm. Because bread... um, has a, a very complicated a meaning. In Christianity, of course, bread represents Christ. The body of Christ. The right. body of Christ. And so if that body happens to be a little bit sweeter, so much the better, <laughs> instead of the dry wafers you get in church. So that the idea of having these breads for Easter comes in with Christianity. It also, however, probably dates before Christianity, because to Europeans in general, to people in the Middle East, bread has been the staff of life. And so with the coming of the new year, um, you start planting and you start using up the old wheat of the previous season. But of course, it isn't just regular old bread that you serve at Easter. It is deeply enriched bread. And what do you put into the bread typically is, well, that quintessential symbol of fertility, the egg. Right. So the more eggs, the better. Um, The other idea with the bread, which is also very primitive, is this idea of yeast. The yeast, you make your loaf of bread, of course, and then it magically, magically rises. Um, Like the belly of a pregnant woman um, or another pregnant animal for that matter. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there's long been this, you know, anthropologists look at this and sort of see the rising round loaf as symbolic of uh, fertility in that sense. Mm -hmm. And in some cultures also remember that both Easter and um, Passover, Easter based on Passover uh, is celebrated at the first uh, spring moon. And again, you have that round form symbolizing the moon and in some cultures it also represents the coming of the sun because it is also soon after uh spring equinox so it has all these multiple associations and if you want to look at really 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 obvious fertility associations you can simply look to the greek and some southern uh, mediterranean breads where you take the bread and then you plate it like woman's hair You make it into a circle, which in most cultures represents, um, how shall we say this, Um, femininity. (laughs) That's a good way to say it. Okay. A a braid in a circle, right? A braid in a circle. So you've got symbolism (laughs) A, symbolism B, and then you stick eggs in it, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, it is the... You don't have to be an anthropologist to see the meaning in that. <laughs> yes, but you, you painted a very vivid image for us. Thank you. <laughs> and and then, of course, as time went on, these eggs became more festive and colored eggs. But in, You mentioned Greek, um, starting it with the Greeks. And they always color their eggs red. Red. For the passion of Christ. Yeah. And then the death and the suffering and the oh, sure. and whatever. Yeah. You know? I mean, it is about death and rebirth. I mean, right. that's what Easter is all about. Yeah. And it's interesting that, that um, Easter feasts, Easter sweets, I mean, what, you think about it, they've just gone through 40 days of, of Lent and, and um, 
forbidden foods, and so all of a sudden they you know, get to bring out all the wonderful foods that they can finally eat, dairy, eggs, uh, meat, because we're not talking about meat today. Um, of course, of course. Yeah, um, but the other thing that you have to think about is with the, particularly with the eggs, is the eggs, uh, chickens aren't laying so many eggs That's traditionally right. in the winter. That's right. So this is the first time of year when you do, you have eggs available. Um, but also butter, which was forbidden mm. uh, for, for the 40 days. Mm-hmm. Um, butter into a lesser degree lard, but it was really the butter so that, you know, you pile the butter into all of these sweets as well. Put it all in one thing and call, yeah. it, <laughs> call it bread. Exactly. <laughs> it's good for you. You have exactly. to eat it, right? Right. Well, and there are so many different breads and, and beautiful breads, and, and um, we can take a trip around the world talking about these sweet breads. Um, in, and I can mention and start with Italy. Uh, of course, they have the the Colombo di Pasqua. I mean, Italy is amazing, isn't yeah, it? You've got yeah. all these regional specialties, and everybody's got something else. And what I always love about Italians is that not only do they have uh, different foods, but they have different names for the same food. So you'll yes. be in one town, and it'll be called one thing, and right. another town, another <laughs> thing. Um, one of my favorites is something called a the Venetian, uh, the Venetians call a fugazza in the local dialect or a focaccia in standard Italian. And, you know, we think of a focaccia as this kind of like tomato-less, cheese-less white pizza, white pizza right? <laughs> right. Um, but in fact, in Venice, uh, they make something much more like a panettone. It's a big round, again, this, it's this round loaf that comes in various sizes. Um, I remember going to a very traditional Venetian pasticceria and they would have, you know, the two-euro version, the five-euro version, the 15-euro version, and then the 50-euro <laughs> version, which was enough to feed a very large family. Mm. And it is exactly this kind of bread with tons and tons of butter, tons and tons of um, eggs and egg yolks in it. And you name it. There's, you know, booze in there. There's all sorts of spices because Venetians are particularly uh, – fond of their spices Mm -hmm. but because it is so heavily laden down with fat and eggs the yeast doesn't work that well and so they have to something like five rises on this thing wow which you have to control very very rapidly i've tried replicating this recipe and there is actually a recipe in um in sweet invention for it but you have to be patient um again i was talking to the uh, the pastry shop owner and he was saying yeah nobody wants to make these anymore because you mm. have to get up at three o'clock in the morning to look after the yeast yeah indeed um, and is that i'm not familiar with the venetian um uh, variety does it have dried fruits in it it doesn't well, have does dried not? fruits okay. the main difference between it and the panettone is the shape mm-hmm. uh this one is much more of a round loaf shape uh it's got a little bit of sides to it but it doesn't have that tall uh you describe it sort of that columnar like, like a toque like a chef's toque like a chef toque <laughs> yeah, shape yeah. um so it is much more sort of like a loaf loaf mm-hmm. um well the colombo the and the the traditional colombo di pasqua throughout the rest of italy is also just the like a panettone cake without any of the dried fruits and just but plain right but and in the shape of a shape dove. of a dove right sprinkled colombo you know, in right italian yeah and so hmm, interesting um uh, you know i i didn't realize that um, 
the meaning behind sfogliatelle, and that being because of the many layers that that was associated with fertility. The sfogliatelle. You know, I don't know about this. I, Tell me I, about this. I, don't, I just read about it in, in one of the books and doing some preparation. I was reading, I was saying, well, what? I should know some of these other things from Italy, having lived there for so long. And and I thought, well, sfogliatelle, you get them all year round now, but, but traditionally they were made um, during the spring, and particularly for Easter, because of the ricotta, that they would fill it with a ricotta cream. Well, of course, the and, lambs are right, right. You know, being born. The sheep's have milk, and they're and again, the ricotta was uh, forbidden during the forty right, days. Right. Uh, of course, one of the funny things about that is that you know one culture adapts another culture, and the sfogliatella is very much of an Arabic technique. In mm. fact, there's reci- there's an Arabic recipe for virtually the same thing from about the twelfth, thirteenth century, um, and that method of making the layers is very much th- th- there's very old. Old, sort of early medieval recipes for making that pasta sfogliata, that that special uh, pasta. Oh, yeah. Because I don't know if you're aware of how it's made, but it's basically made by um, where's traditional um, French patouille or um, uh, how you say it in your country? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> puff pastry. Puff pastry. Right. Puff pastry <laughs> is made by basically folding in half dough over and over and over and over, actually in thirds, dough over and over with, with butter, butter in between. <laughs> uh, the dough for sfogliatelle is made by smearing um, warm butter um, on a sheet of dough, rolling it up, and then rolling then it rolling out. rolling it, right. Uh, a very different technique and a very much of an Arabic technique. Hmm, interesting. Though there are, I mean, we, we mentioned ricotta, and, and of course another... Um, Traditional Easter sweet is the ricotta pie, or right, like the, the ricotta Rico- cheesecake. Right, yeah, right, right, and then right. again the the lamb, the sheep's milk um, from you know birthing lambs, and again you know the rebirth and and fertility. It's like, all these things. Okay, jelly beans. What about je- well, they're eggs, right? <laughs> <laughs> they <laughs> are. Some, but I mean, candy came into you know came into being and associated with uh, with Easter chocolate, and of course, just in recreating the shapes of all those things that were representative and symbolic of of uh, birth and, and... Well, I love how these things become completely disassociated from their <laughs> origins, yeah. right? I mean, chocolate bunnies. Of course we all have chocolate bunnies for Easter. Um, why, why do we have chocolate bunnies for Easter? And why do chocolate bunnies bring, or bunnies bring eggs? Eggs, right. <laughs> and if you think about it too hard... It could be a little frightening. Why is this rabbit coming into my house <laughs> depositing <laughs> eggs, right? <laughs> but indeed, I mean, the rabbit is associated with fertility, oh, right? the rabbit couldn't be more um, pagan in that sense. <laughs> right. We all know that they breed like bunnies, right? They do, <laughs> so, those chocolate right. eggs. Yeah. But interesting, I mean, and I th- it, over time it became associated with um, – with the Virgin Mary, only because I think there was some Pliny or somebody had written that they thought the hair, not you know rabbit, but the hair could reproduce without losing virginity, <laughs> so to speak. And so they eventually led to you know in later right. centuries. So these, so these things become so unbelievably oh, convoluted. The lore, right? Yeah, the lore absolutely. Behind it. But this whole idea of sort of the symbolic eating of you know objects or animals and so on and so on this too well this goes back to the roman days of course where they would um, make uh, breads sweetened with honey usually because they didn't really have sugar uh sweetened with honey in the shape of male sexual organs Mm. um which would they would presumably eat at the end of the meal well 
not presumably they would eat at the end of the meal to give them more energy for other activities um and there's all these various breast shaped uh, oh, yes. sweets oh, yeah. um not only do you have these in um in sicily today but you have referenced these things in ancient greece as well these mm. sort of breast shaped sweet sweets and uh, in france in france as well you know then you know the the nuns the breast of the nuns and whatever else they have yeah which is also a little bit macabre and uh, yeah. that also relates to this whole idea of kind of the virginal i don't know virginal virtuous thing that you eat and somehow imbibe that thing and it is very primitive and almost totemic because there were particularly when it comes to gingerbread they would make all sorts of things with gingerbread right and this whole idea of making um bunnies for example yeah we were talking about that before the show thing well they wouldn't have made in the in the 17th century would not have made a chocolate molded bunny rabbit and you mentioned that possibly gingerbread right it's most likely that it comes from gingerbread because um in germany in let's say the late middle ages the early renaissance they would create all these fantastic molds there are museums devoted to these molds these elaborately carved molds of for gingerbread um and they began with saints in them you know so that you would put um, the dutch still do this they put saint nicholas and make a gingerbread saint nicholas and then you eat the saint, right? And in eating the saint, you become more saintly, mm-hmm. which is the same idea as eating the host at the Christian mass. You actually eat the blood and flesh. Well, you drink the blood, but eat the flesh of you know, the living Lord. Right. And that somehow makes you more holy. Well, this would become turned into St. Nicholas or it become much more um, pagan than that. So you would have... You'd eat a bunny if you wanted to become more fertile. Mm -hmm. You'd eat a um, cockerel if you wanted to be more uh, virile. I guess that's the right term. Or aggressive. Yeah, aggressive (laughs) aggressive or virile, right. Right. Um, And then there were various sort of saints, legs, feet, ears um, that were created so that you could nibble on, you know, a saint's ear and uh, become... More saintly, I suppose. Mm, yummy. <laughs> I think on that note, we're going to take a short break, but this is fascinating, and I want to hear so much more when we come back on A Taste of the Past.
Ranch grass-fed beef, pasture-raised on 150,000 acres in Central California. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, free-range, sustainably produced, humane. Hearst Ranch grass-fed beef, the authentic flavor of the American West. We're back uh, talking with Michael Crandall about Easter sweets and symbolism of of, uh, pagan sweets as well as uh, religious sweets. And we can't forget hot cross buns. Of course. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, hot cross buns. I mean, they're so much like all those other Easter Easter, eggs, breads breads and cakes um, in that they've got all these spices in them, right? Which, of course, goes back to the Middle Ages. And Um, and puffy yeast dough. And their puffy yeast dough. Um, I at one point looked into the hot cross bun issue, and it's unclear how old they are. They used to be um, eaten, actually, for Good Friday. Mm. Um, And then they kind of spread through the entire Lent, which is sort of ironic because... In most cases, these sweetbreads are only eaten after, after Lent. After Lent, right. But it may well be that the British weren't really into Lent so much. Uh, <laughs> Henry VIII got rid of Lent. That's right. And um, <laughs> so they now became traditional for um, the entire period of Lent. And the oldest reference I could find to them was from the 18th century. Oh, yeah. Um, hmm. Where they said something about going downstairs to eat with the servants who had made the hot cross buns. So they've been around. And they used to be hawked on the street. Uh, there's all those, um, I forget the, the limerick now, but hot cross buns, two a penny, three a penny right. hot cross buns, which apparently showed up, I think, in, I'll say Bath in London, in England, but I'm not sure that's quite right. Mm. Well, I found some reference to uh, Pendoramarino. Uh, you and I were talking about that before the show. I asked you if you had heard about it. They sound to me an awful lot like... Um, what we know of as hot cross buns, except the cross, they were, they're small yeast, or yeah, I believe yeast, I don't know if it's a quick bread or yeast, um, a sweetened dough, but it has a, for the cross, is rosemary. So it symbolizes the, the, um, the body, what is it, the, the body of Christ, and, and then the rosemary symbolizes the oils that, that Christ would have been bathed in for before his burial, something. I had never heard reference to that before. And so. it's fascinating because you don't find really so many Italian breads with rosemary in them, right? Exactly. Rosemary is usually associated with savory food mm-hmm. in, in Italy. On a, as, as we're talking about focaccia, on a, on a savory yeah, focaccia. Yeah, sure, 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 But, sure, sure, you know, sure. not, a, not in a sweet. No, that's not true. Sweet, I'm just thinking. Um, uh, chestnut cake. Uh, it's a sweet. It's it's a lightly sweet. It's sort of a combination between a savory and a sweet. Right, and right. it has been, you know, it's it's made with rosemary yeah. in it. So One of the funny, um, interesting. interesting things in Italy is that I was when I was working on the book, I was trying to figure out okay, what is a bread and what is a dessert, and yeah. we in English have an idea of what that means. But in Italy, these focaccias, these um, uh, panettone, the, all of these. Um, sweet breads are never sold at the bakery they're never Mm-mm. sold by the bakers they're sold at, by the pasticcere by the um uh the, at the pastry shop 
So in the Italian mind, these are not breads. These are cakes mm -hmm. in much the same way that traditionally the French thought of brioche, which is the same idea, right, as a cake, as in let them eat cake. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a cake rather than a bread. And it's a, sort of a funny distinction. Mm -hmm. um, when I was growing up, I grew up in the what's now the Czech Republic. And for Easter, there were two different things that we had. We had something called a mazanets, which is very much one of these yeast-raised breads with lots of candied fruit in it. It is round, and it is studded with almonds. And I don't know what that studding with almonds refers to. I'm mm. sure it refers to something like, you know, the crown of thorns or something well, like and, that. Um, and almonds are, are very much a part of a lot of... Uh I think the spring and Easter dishes, I don't know why. Um, I think it's just they were expensive mm. because they were imported. So, yes. Right? I mean, all the Christmas desserts seem to have walnuts in them and the spring desserts seem to have almonds, almonds because they yeah. were just expensive and imported, just like the sugar was expensive. Mm -hmm. And eggs, too. You know, I mean, eggs That's used true. to be extremely expensive if you bought them yourself. Uh, if you raised them, it was one thing. But um, an egg would have been the, the equivalent of a dollar in those days. Hmm. Wow. And an egg. So we had these mazanets, these sort of round loaves, but then we also had these molded Easter lamb cakes. And everybody would have one of these molds. The older ones, the traditional ones, were made out of earthenware. And the more recent ones were made out of tin or something yeah, like aluminum, that. Right. Yeah. And then there was sort of like a distinction about what kind of a cake you were going to make. Mm -hmm. Again, the older cake was made with a yeast dough. So it was kind of like a panettone type of dough. Uh, you would pour the dough in this, it would rise, you would bake it, and so on. Uh, and then you would glaze it with some sort of a sugar glaze and put two raisins into the eyes and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and then there was a sponge cake version. Um, and, of course, the great fun at dinner is that you slice into the lamb. I mean, you are <laughs> sacrificing the lamb, you know, the sugary lamb. Um, and... Um, of course, the, the Italians have much the same thing, right? Except that there is usually marzipan. Right. Um, but again, almonds, interestingly enough. Yeah. The almonds come into it. Hmm. Uh, and, well, in, in Polish, there's um, they still make the, in Poland, it's a Polish tradition as well to have the the Easter lamb cake. Uh-huh. I guess lamb on the table, lamb And on do you happen to know how they make that? No. Okay. But my sister had asked me to please go to, you know, the New York Baking Company or something to find a mold. She couldn't find a lamb mold. Now they're, that, this was years ago, now they're all over the place. Yeah. You, know, yeah. That you yeah. can yeah. find yeah. them. They come back into fashion. Let's talk about the Pasca. Well, as you get further north and east, east. from where <laughs> I grew up... <laughs> You get all sorts of these. Again, I mean, it's basically a panettone, but all these. But sorts, think about the name Pasca. It's a it's a cake, a bread, a sweet bread. But it sounds like Pasqua or Pesach. It comes it directly comes from, from Latin Pascal lamb. Yes, yeah. I mean it is specifically an Easter dessert. So Pasca, um, and I'm not sure how widely disseminated it is because it sort of depends a little bit where you are in Eastern Europe. But I know that in the Ukraine, um, they have make these Pascas, and they're often decorated with all sorts of really pagan symbols. <laughs> you know, they put a sun on them, they put sheaves of wheat, they put pussy, pussy willows, you know, all these signs of, again, spring, 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 like spring. Like a marshmallow paper. peep. <laughs> like a marshmallow peep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but a slightly older version. And then, of course, you so you make this incredibly pagan bread. Um, and then apparently, traditionally, they would swaddle this in infant 
a swaddling cloth, hmm. you know, like the baby Jesus, uh, or like an infant. And then they would bring it to church to have it blessed before eating it. So, you know, once more, this idea of rebirth just so graphically depicted, um, and this blending of, I guess, orthodox in their case, and um, pagan ritual all in one. Hmm. That's what, well, that's what Easter is, right? That is. That's right. That's right. It all brought it back. And, and uh, so many, uh, I'm sure if we looked into other cultures, there are so many other foods that, that hold such symbolism such as that. And it's interesting to delve into that. And I know that we can find out a lot more if we look at your book called Sweet Invention, The History of Dessert. I'm sure you have a lot of goodies tucked in there for us to find all well, around. If you look at these, uh, many of these desserts, because sweet things used to be um, rare and expensive, uh, they were often associated with the priest class. Mm. So that uh, apparently in ancient Babylonia, you would have priests who were specifically, um, you know, whose job was it was to make sweet meats or sweet cakes. Uh, of course, they weren't using sugar. They were using dates and honey, honey and those right. sorts of things. Um, but then when you go to India, Indians... In India, in the same way that maybe bread is sacred in um, in the West, um, in India it is milk. Milk is the sacred ingredient. And specifically anything that comes from a cow, of course, to a Hindu is sacred. That's right, right. So not only is it, you know, the things that we would think to eat, but also things we would not think to eat uh, <laughs> are considered the liquids that are produced by a cow. And one of the most sacred ones is uh, butter. So that be butter or rendered ghee. So basically anything you cook in ghee becomes holy. Mm-hmm. And as a result, all the holidays that they have around the year, uh, whether it's Diwali, which is the big sort of sweet blowout uh, that usually happens sometime in the fall. Um, anything that you fry, bake, cook uh, with a little bit of butter in it, with a little bit of this ghee in it becomes naturally sacred, naturally holy, and then you can kind of give it to others. Uh, I remember being in Calcutta when I was doing research for the book, and uh, I happened to be there during Kali Puja. Kali Puja is, a puja is a holiday, basically. But a Kali Puja coincides with what they have Diwali everywhere else in Mm -hmm. India, but not in Bengal, where they have something different. And you go to the temple, and at the temple, there are two things that you are supposed to bring to the goddess. One is hibiscus blossoms because they're blood red and Kali is a bit of a bloodthirsty goddess. Um, so you, she likes uh, hibiscus flowers. But the other thing is something called peda, which is a... I always think of it as like a space ration. It is essentially milk cooked down with sugar. So that it is this highly concentrated, and it's these little discs, almost fudge-like discs. Dulce de leche or something. Um, They're not as caramelized as that. They Mm. control the caramelization process more. Mm. So it's more like, think evaporated milk or condensed Mm -hmm. milk turned into a pellet. Mm. Um, And then you cook these down, you spice them with a little bit of cardamom. And they are this almost primitive-like fudge, and you can... you can almost see, you know, the gods up in Olympus or the the Hindu equivalent nibbling on these as a quick pick-me-up. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm sure that there's a, a, a whole other show in that. And going to <laughs> India alone, if I remember from your article in Gastronomica, it was it was terrific. Um, and I look forward. Oh, tell me, you are you are going to be working with Dara Goldstein, another one of our 
guests on the show here on a, a new edition of companion to the Oxford Encyclopedia on uh, sweets, right? We are putting together, or I should say Dara is putting together, and I'm her man Friday there. Um, we're putting together a companion to sweets, which will have, I think, something like a thousand entries um, of sweets around the world. We're getting experts from around the world to contribute, and it should be an astonishing volume when we finally edit it and publish it, which will probably be uh, two years, maybe, yeah. if we're lucky. <laughs> okay, hopefully we'll still be around, and we can have you both on and talk about that. And I look forward to your new book coming out, Donuts, because we can do another show about donuts. That would be fun. That would, that would be wonderful. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been enlightening. You are so welcome. And, and I wish everyone a great holiday, whatever holidays you're celebrating. And eat some sweets and think of the meaning. Absolutely. Thanks for joining. I'm Linda Palaccio, and this has been A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.